Grow Great is a city government leadership podcast with Lisa Norris and me, Randy Cantrell. Each week we share insights, experiences, and wisdom to help you and your leadership grow great. Our website is growgreat.com. A weaponized, it, it's one of those things where uh, your your greatest asset is also your detriment, right? So a weaponized sense of humor uh, can go a long way, but uh, it can also uh, not go well, depending on. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Lisa's heard me say your, your strengths become your weakness. That is so correct. It's how it happens. He <laughs> is James Brandon. He is the chief of police in South Lake, Texas, and we're happy to have him. We've wanted to have him because James is our kind of people. He is, uh, well, he's a people guy. He's very verbose, by the way, you'll find out he's, he's <laughs> no, he's not. He's anything but verbose. Glad you're, I'm glad we're glad you're here. James glad to shine a light on you, your department, your leadership, and, uh, even the city of South Lake. So welcome. I'm submarined at the outset. Thank you, Randy. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Thank you both for yeah. having me. Yeah. Well, All James, right. we always we always start out with uh, just a little bit about you, so our audience knows who they are talking to, and and tell us a little bit about your leadership journey that got you into your current role at South Lake. Uh, so, me briefly in a nutshell, um, I am forty eight. My wife and I have been married for twenty three years. We've got two kids; they're seventeen and nineteen, and will either be great successes of our lives or be the death of us, yet to be <laughs> determined. Um, I worked for the Illinois Department of Corrections in a maximum security prison from 96 to January of 99, uh, which was an adventure. I worked in segregation, so I, I joked that if you can't get along in a maximum security prison, you get sent to segregation. And so those are the people that really can't get along. Um, however, it's an environment where uh, you don't really have any weapons. You have pepper spray. You, you don't, there's no guns or anything except up in the towers because anything you have the inmates can take away from you so um what i learned really early on in that environment was how to use my words and uh sense of humor or uh, persuasive ability to get things done because all you can really do at the end of the day is talk to them and hope that that works so not an environment you want to escalate anything i wouldn't assume no um you know it's a really odd environment um, there were, there were 5,000 maximum security inmates there. There was segregation where I worked at and it was next door to death row. Um, so those really are, I mean, if you use the broad term, the worst of the worst, um, that is what those guys were. Um, but you want to talk down everything. And the only reason that that environment works is because enough of them can't decide at once that they're leaving. If, if they all decided at once that they weren't going to be there, there's very little that anybody could really do about that. Um, but Fortunately, it doesn't work that way. So in uh, January of 99, I got hired with the Corpus Christi Police Department. I was there until uh, February of 2014. Uh, so was fortunate enough to advance through the ranks, um, became a lieutenant and then a captain. Um, was on, on the SWAT team for 11 years, right up until I left. Um, and then as an officer and then advanced to being a team leader and then eventually co-commander of the, the SWAT team and the bomb squad. Um, was running the organized crime unit when I left also. Um, and within the organized crime unit, we had the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and the uh, Safe Streets Violent Gang Task Force. Um, some of those sit within the FBI. We were just supervising. I was supervising the PD's participation in that unit, in those units. Um, so really had things going I mean, things were going great there. If I could have written a job description, um, that was it. I had the, the chief there once tell me that anything violent that went on within 50 miles of Corpus Christi that I, I was somehow present for all the time. And that was just, you know, the positions that I held. So in the world of police work, that was pretty interesting. Um, guy named Steve Milet, who was uh, an assistant chief in Corpus Christi, left to become the chief in Southlake uh, in probably 2011. Um, and then his assistant chief up here was retiring. So he called me in 2012, about a year after he'd been here, and asked me if I wanted to enter the process uh, for this job. And my, my first uh, answer was no, because I really had it great where I was. And then I hung up the phone and thought, well, that's dumb. I don't even know where Southlake is, and I don't know what I just said no to. So... <laughs> 
um, my wife and I came up and looked around. And then what I realized is we were really choosing where our kids were going to grow up. I mean, at the time they were nine and seven, and that's really the, the decision. And that made that choice easy. So came here as an assistant chief in February of 13. And then uh, Chief Milet left and in about February of 2015. And then I got promoted to chief and uh, am somehow still here. Well, you came for the excitement of Southlake versus the SWAT commandership and all that. It's a very different environment, thankfully. Yeah, it, it is. It's sort of two different sides of a coin, if you will. Um, although the important piece of that is that people's needs are people's needs. Um, it's the most important thing to them that day. You know, the environment that I came from in Corpus Christi, that was often a violent crime. Um, here, it doesn't tend to be that, but... Um, it, whatever's going on with people that day, if it's that one thing that they need the police for in their lives, and maybe the only time they come into contact with us, then that's still something we need to satisfy in that moment, really regardless of the context. Chief Milet or and anybody else that you want to hearken back to that had a had a real pivotal role in your development and your perspective of of how leadership ought to be, who would that be and what stories would you share? Um, so I think we all have uh, in our careers probably some great examples of leadership. And I think we also learn a lot of lessons from the leaders that we have been around that we looked at. And we thought that is exactly how not to do that. Mm. Um, sometimes that's just as valuable every once in a while, depending on the situation, and may even be more valuable than, uh, than sometimes the positive lesson. Uh, for better or for worse, in Corpus Christi, I was around a lot of both of those. Um, Chief Milet was one of those positive, positive guys for me. And uh, I've always sort of had kind of a, I don't know, I guess a little bit of a reluctant relationship with, not with leadership, just with advancement. Um, I remember being a captain in Corpus Christi and Milet telling me, well, you're going to be a chief of police someday. You need to plan for this. You need to do this and this. And I said, I'm not going to be that. And he said, why? And I said, well, you got to have a master's degree to be a chief. I don't want to be a chief. I'm not getting my master's degree, blah, blah, blah you know, probably acted like a petulant teenager. Um, so it's 2023. I've got a master's degree and I've been a chief for eight years. So here we are. Here we are. <laughs> sometimes, uh, sometimes maybe others see those things in yourself better than, than we than do. We do. Yeah. yeah. Well, what um, is your, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. When I, when I was a uh, captain in Corpus Christi, um, I got put into a position where I worked directly for the chief of police and the chief at that time was a guy named Troy Riggs. And Troy worked for, uh, was an assistant chief for Louisville Metro PD in Kentucky and uh, competed for and got the Corpus Christi chief's job. And he was really a, uh, to say a breath of fresh air is really, really an understatement. I mean, he really undertook a gargantuan task of, of turning around that department. The department was operationally very good, but administratively and strategically um, needed a lot of improvement. Um, so I got he put me in a position where I was uh, working more or less directly for him and got to, to be around him a lot. And he was the example that I, that I would think that's what that's supposed to look like. That's what being, a, that's how you're supposed to handle people. That's how you're supposed to deal with the media. That's how you're supposed to attack these issues. And um, even today, if I'm a little stuck on something or there's two ways to deal with the problem, I will catch myself thinking, man, if I was still following chief Riggs around, what would I see him do? Um, and he often still serves as my example and is a guy that I'll still call and bounce things off of, um, as well as chief Milet. So it's great to have those kinds of influences that you can, you can still get back to. We always talk about humility, uh, and not being the smartest person in the room. And it's nice to have those contacts that you can say, here's my situation. Here's what I think I'm going to do. A am I missing something? Is there something you would, would, you would do different? And sometimes just, they ask great questions that help you, they don't even tell you the answer. They just ask great questions so that you can get yourself to the right answer for your situation and your uh, environment and culture and all that stuff that's important in making decisions that are right, because it can be a right for different people. Well, sometimes it's just having that point of view from somebody that's outside and not as close to whatever the issue or the problem is that that's you right. are. I mean, I, I know there's times for me that I'm, I'm talking to one of those guys that's a mentor or a leader um, or our city manager, Shauna Yelverton, who is great in those capacities. And, and I will talk about whatever the issue is and I can hear myself saying it. And I know the answer as soon as I'm hearing those words leave my mouth, just something about the act of just 
talking about it with somebody verbalizing it tends to crystallize it but to the point you made about not being the smartest person in the room i remember uh, being an officer in corpus and then i had been promoted to supervisor so now uh, in addition to patrol duties i'm in charge of half of the swat team so at the time that swat team was uh 24 officers six medics four bomb techs and a surgeon um, so I find myself in charge of half of it. And that's, uh, the on the ground team leader kind of point of view. So with the SWAT officers, you're, you're, they're coordinating everything with them, relaying information back to command. And I remember the first call out, um, for me in that role was a guy who, uh, we needed to get out of a hotel room to arrest him for some kind of violent felony. I don't remember what it was, but we dealt with this guy before we knew that was going to be a challenge. Um, he always fights with police officers. And I remember all of a sudden feeling overwhelmed, even though that is really a simple scenario. There's not a lot of complications going on in that. But I felt overwhelmed and I'm sitting there thinking, how am I going to solve this? And as I'm sitting there solving this, the point guys that are closest to the hotel room come on the radio and say, subject in custody. All right, well, I guess I don't have to solve it. And um, you know, I asked them what happened and they tell me, and basically because they were with an eyesight of the door, they saw an opportunity to end that situation really quickly because of something the suspect did. So they ended it. But my instant thought was how arrogant that I was standing there thinking that I had to provide some kind of solution or answer for this. And I don't, all I've got to do is sort of corral all these smart, well-trained, well-equipped people and give them a mission and the curbs on the road and turn them loose and support them. And they did it. Uh, and that's something that's just universally true, but it really got driven home to me in that that small example. There's nothing that can damage something faster than ego, right? And this having such a high ego that we think it has to be us sometimes. Not that that was you in that situation, but in moments where you see uh, high ego and, and their way is the only way and they're the only ones that can solve it and they start the micromanaging, it often just stifle such creativity and such uh, energy that you have at your, some of your lowest levels or frontline troops that can solve it best because they're in the moment. Right. Uh, We see that on occasion. It's such a, it's such a simple concept, but it's also such a big concept because it sounds like an easy thing, but it permeates the entire organization. So We have a really high level of morale here in this police department and Southlake uses Gallup's Q12 principles in managing that that level of engagement. Um, And we're regularly one of the highest in the cities. I I believe if I remember right, our our last one, we were in the 93rd percentile. Um, Our first survey in 2014, I think we were in the 25th percentile. Um, But what I'm getting at is what you just said. If If you do all the work in the background, So you hire the right people through the right processes. You train them the right way. You equip them the right way. You've given them the right policies. You give them the right curbs on the road. You give them the right support. You make them understand that they work in a teaching environment where if they screw up, it's not something where we descend to just, you know, impose some kind of discipline. We want it to be better and we understand that. Um, Then you've created this environment where people want to do well Mm. and then if I were to portray myself as the guy that must solve everything, I think what I'm doing is really just going around and stomping on every one of them instead of saying, Hey, you guys are smart. What do you think we ought to do? And then not only will they fix the problem, but it also creates this environment where they can be fulfilled. It's kind of, you know, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy, you're at the, you're at the top end of it there where not only are they doing the job, they're, they're doing it to a level that can satisfy uh, their own sort of self-actualization needs. Um, and when those things are going on, that's when I sit back and watch it. And I think, yeah, that's working pretty well. So I'm going to leave <laughs> because if I stay, I'll probably be ready. <laughs> that's right. You know, I heard a, I, it. It reminds me, I had heard of this great story and I saw it early on, probably about a year ago. I was just looking for leadership videos. We do a, like a walk the talk and um, some other videos that are just short snippets of learning lessons. Mm-hmm. And in there was one called the butterfly effect. Have you heard of that? No, the the butterfly effect was very similar to what you just talked about with stifling. And and it's basically a man comes along, sees a little cocoon of a butterfly, you know, that's trying to get out and it's trying to get out and it can see it wriggling. And he watches it goes back, comes back hours later, it's still wriggling and it can't get all the way out. 
and he goes and clips the end of the cocoon so that the, the butterfly can fully come out. And when the butterfly uh, erupts, he's he's kind of horrified because it's got these little short wings and this huge body. So it's not this beautiful monarch. It's kind of a deformed monarch and comes to find out that by opening the sack and inserting himself to, to help that, it's the energy of the butterfly uses to get out of that cocoon that removes the liquid from the body and goes into the wings to make the wings beautiful and large. And it was lasting because it was a probably a two minute story. But the point being in leadership that if you always think you're helping and going in to save something or going in to do something and you're taking charge, how often are we stifling those trying to bloom and grow, right? Trying to become... Mm better leaders and better versions of themselves. And we're not intending to harm, but we do. And um, I remember Randy telling me that one time, he goes, you know, are we helping or are you crippling those beneath you? And it was so, it was such a point made in my head. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, you're right. I don't want to be doing that. That's not my intent. And so you have to refocus your efforts. Yeah, absolutely. think if you just create this environment where um, people are heard and that they, they want to do well and you've equipped them, then it, it can really just achieve some some great things. Um, I think as a police department, uh, it's still kind of weird for me sometimes because um, Lisa, you know, police departments typically are not inhabited by the most positive people in the world. Um, if you think about the substance <laughs> of our work, it's almost all negative. That's right. The we're, contacts. We're in, mm-hmm. I mean, so if you, the police department is a customer base that, that we deal with by doing things to them that they don't want done. It's kind of weird relationship. Um, but there's a way to do that. And there's you know a way to be professional and et cetera, et cetera. But um, working in that environment can create a group of people that are very cynical and that tend to see the negative in everything. Um, I think the attributes that make great police officers often run counter to the attributes that make great human beings. That's just kind of the way it works. Um, So to have a group of police officers that are generally happy to come to work and that communicate well and that don't work to tear things down and that uh, tend to stifle gossip uh, that will come and ask questions um, sometimes I still feel like it's fantastic that we have that. And I kind of don't want to make eye contact with it because I'm afraid I'll scare it off somehow. <laughs> How was that culture created? Uh, intentionally. Um, it, it's a matter, I think, if I had to try to distill it down, and it's probably maybe a little like trying to nail jello to a wall, at least for me. Um, maybe you'll hear different things. It's it's just, it's all about the people and it's just about supporting them. Um, so you got to go through a lot to get hired here as a police officer anywhere, but that doesn't mean that this couldn't apply to private sector or anybody else. I mean, you're vetting the people that you're hiring, especially for important positions. Um, the day that they walk in the door, I think we as employers need to understand that we ask them to be there. We want them to be there. They're not something to tolerate. They're not something to shove off in a corner. They're the most valuable resource that we have, and they need to be treated that way. And when employees or people in general, even my kids, understand that that's what you're there for, then they will extend a great deal of trust to you. And even when things change that they don't like, their first assumption won't be, well, I'm getting screwed over. It'll be, well, there must be a reason that happened. I'll ask. And, And that's what tends to happen around here. So it's really just about having a culture of, of trusting them to do their jobs, of not being in their business. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that I see go on. And I think, you know, based on experience from my career or whatever, I know how that's going to turn out. I know what the answer to that is. If somebody asks me the question, I can tell them the answer right now. Um, but if I leave it alone for another day, they're going to work through it all themselves and figure it out themselves. And it takes no involvement from anybody who had to tell them what's going to happen or anything else. So there's a lot of that I do. Um, as long as it's something that's fairly ro- low risk, if it's higher risk, then obviously that's a different situation and I'll involve myself. Um, but you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, 
or it came up maybe just in my own head about different leadership styles and not being autocratic and things. Um, I think, have you ever gone through some sort of hiring process or maybe some kind of evaluation where they ask you what your leadership style is? Or we've seen that question in different forms. I always see that and it, and it makes my eyeball twitch because I don't, I think that that question is just wrong because I think if you're good at what you're doing, you've got several different leadership styles in you. And the key is just applying them in the right situations. That's right. So, you know, the police department, we're in the emergency business. So there's a, there's an authoritarian leadership style in me that will show up on something that's high risk and urgent and say, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And everyone says, yes, sir. And they go do it. Um, but those things are few and far in between. Most of the time I can show up and go, hey, guys, what, what's the goal? What are we working towards? And everybody will outline for me what's going on. I can say, well, just think of this or this or this. And, um you know, the answers are yes or no, and we'll work through that. There's also a level where I just show up and stand there and watch or listen and just make sure that everything in my own head, that I know that everything is okay and, and on track, but that's associated by the risk level of whatever's happening. But um, I, I think those leadership styles, that the, the real key to success with people is morphing them to whatever that situation needs or what that person needs. Um, some people... You know, when I was in the FTO program, you first become a police officer, you graduated the academy, you're riding with a training officer. Um, that was back in the era where part of what the FTO's job was, this experienced police officer's job was to make you quit. That, you know, it was almost like a, a boot camp type atmosphere. Like, if you can survive me, then you can do this job kind of thing. Weeding out process. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't respond to that because I am just my own personality. Like, you're paying me to be here. I can go get treated like crap anywhere. That's just not my thing. Um, if you want to teach me, I will stay here all day and listen. Um, so, you know, there's people out there that can be struggling and they they need a kick in the rear end. And that's what they respond to. And there's a lot of other people that respond to you just asking, hey, how are you? What's going on? Seems like something's on your mind or just asking questions or, or supporting them. So I think hitting those different things when people need it is really the, the key. It's so important just understanding it's one understanding the audience, right? Knowing your audience, then understanding the need, then applying the method for the situation at hand. It's it's just kind of this you have to go through and figure out if you try to do a one size fits all, I tell people it will never work. When you're mm -hmm. when you're dealing with humans, we are not alike. It and we can be three great people, you can have three challenging people, but what they need for success one is partly motivated by their own their own mm -hmm. ability and desire but secondly how you apply insight and wisdom and learning and teaching to get them to be the best version of themselves uh it, it takes it takes knowing and understanding them we talk about that so much randy and i to people you cannot just apply the same method to every person in every situation mm -hmm. that will not work you have to really listen and understand what is going on to help them find a solution that works for them or that situation? Absolutely. That's very true. We are Thank so you. simple. We are such simpletons, James. We define leadership really simply in, in kind of three ways, influence, a focus on others, and it's doing for others what they can't do for themselves. That doesn't mean that they're incapable. It just means that, you know, they might be in this, they might be in a position that, that they need, they need help. They can't do this on their own. They need a leader to give them a helping hand. They need a leader. Or can't to see it. Them. Sometimes they can't exactly. see it in themselves initially. And you have to help them not only see it, but accept that that's something they, they can change for the better. You know, well, what struck me when you said that is that as a leader, I may have a level of authority to make something happen for them that's beneficial that they just simply cannot do for themselves in the structure mm -hmm. of the organization or in life or whatever. Well, yeah, sometimes it, we have the authority to influence. We have we have the ability because of our, you know, we always say it's about influence and not power. But sometimes you do have the power that you need to help them make that change because we do have that authority, not a power in a negative sense. But we have the ability when you've got both. It's great. I mean, when you've got leadership and authority, that's it right. doesn't get much better than that, because now you can really you can mow down all the speed bumps, you know, to get in people's in people's way. But I think so many people, so many leaders, it just seems like miss the listening. I always say, don't just, don't just hear, 
but actually listen to what they're saying, because sometimes it's not the words they're communicating. You have to understand what they're getting at. You have to read between the lines of what they're not saying that they mean, right? That they to just to understand them. And I find that is key is just listening and asking questions. And I, then usually it's a, okay, now, you know, now I know where they're coming from. Yeah. And I'll tell you a personal uh, sort of anecdote from that, that that's something that I fight is uh, so to, to our earlier conversation about your, uh, your abilities being your detriment. So in this, world of emergency and crisis that we work in one of the reasons i always thrived and swat bomb squad and all that kind of stuff was uh the ability to make decisions very quickly and that were generally right and to stand by them later however uh when an employee comes in and wants to discuss an issue and they're two seconds into it and i already know the answer that doesn't mean i need to answer it two seconds into it you need to just be quiet and listen and very often we can talk out whatever the problem is, and I may not give them the answer they want, but they will later say something like, well, he heard me out or he listened to me or I got to speak my piece. And that's they value that actually more than even the answer that they got. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very true. How did you even get into this line of work? What prompted you to be at the prison? Um, I always wanted to be a police officer ever since I was a little kid. Um, don't know what else I would have done. Um, the job at the prison in Illinois was really just kind of an interim while I was finding the right police department and working through college and doing all those kind of things. So for me, it wasn't law enforcement, but it was ish kind of in the area. Um, in retrospect, is there, is there a reason for that that you can figure out that you wanted to be a policeman? No, it's it's since I was little. I you mean, I have. Did vague childhood memories of just always wanting to do that. I mean, in high school, I always wanted to do that. And I had times where I thought, well, I'll do this or that because cops don't earn any money, which is, you know, universally kind of true. Um, but it always came back to that. And then, you know, not only have I gotten a, to do it for my whole career, but I was fortunate enough to advance and got to do it at, at a pretty high level. So it seems like police work is comprised of two different types of hires. One is those like me who always wanted to do it and have just waited till they're qualified and, you know, graduate college, whatever, to, to do their applications and get hired. Um, and the other side, which is, well, I needed a job and this is a solid, reliable one that I'm not going to get laid off from and it's got good benefits and I can do it for, you know, 20 plus years and have a pension and all those things are true. Um, but both groups of those people are, are equally good employees. It's not that one necessarily is more or less problematic than the other. It's just my observation of sort of the two different buckets that we get to to put people in in police work. Share with us your philosophy oh, about emerging leaders. And if I'm sidetracking you, Lisa, and you got something to that point, no. go ahead and jump ahead of me. No, go I'm, ahead. I'm curious about development, development of other people. I mean, I know you, you know, we go back a few years uh, mm -hmm. so it may be a loaded question, but you know, I give you really high marks. I give you high marks in just about everything in leadership, frankly, but you seem to me to be particularly mindful of growing and developing people. And after all, the podcast is entitled grow great. And yes. what we're trying to do is we're trying to grow the greatness, you know, in individual people, it largely stems from, and I registered that URL years ago, growgreat.com, because my worldview is by and large, people get up in the morning and they come to work and they want to do good work. Mm -hmm. I was a teenager and I worked for tyrants and I never worked for a boss up to that point that believed that my bosses believed that if they didn't kick your behind, you wouldn't do the job. And so I knew what that looked like. And I've told the story before, but I'll repeat it. I came across a book called the human side of enterprise. And I'm like, okay, this, this person put language to it. The book was written in like 1964 while I was born in 57. So I'm pushing 20 when I read this thing, theory X theory X is we kick their butt until they do the job. And I'm like, well, I, I didn't know it had a name. I've worked for that my <laughs> short career. Well, there's theory. Why theory? Why is people want to do good work? And I'm like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I believe that. And you've already expressed in this time that we've had together that belief, you know, that 
that we want to do good work. Are there exceptions? Of course there are exceptions, just like there are criminals. But by and large, most of us are not criminals. Even if we do break the law and we speed, which I have in Southwark, <laughs> gotten ticketed for it. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what, when I say all of that, what do you, what do you think? What, what can you share with our audience when it comes to developing people, growing people? Well, I think a few things. Um, when you talk about um, Theory X and kicking their butts, what immediately comes to mind is what a miserable way to live. Like, I don't want to come to work and kick people's butts all day. If I've got to do that, there's either something wrong with me or something really wrong with this organization. One of the two, because that situation should be the exception, not the norm. And uh, to me, that's just a miserable way to live. I don't want to come to work and do that. On all day. either side of it, on you right. leading or, or somebody tolerating it. That's a horrible right. No, I mean, I, I come to work and, and ask a lot of times, hey, what can I do for you? What's going on? Um, and it's from a helpful perspective. Genuine, um, yeah. Yeah, of yeah. course. And, and, you know, lots of times the, the thing I've got to have people get past is is they'll tell me they don't need anything because I'm the police chief and, you know, they're unloading boxes of evidence from something and there's, you know, 20 boxes in one person. Now get over it. I can help you just like anybody else. So once you sort of establish that with everybody, then then uh, they'll take you up on those offers. But in terms of development, so I have a wonderful assistant police chief named Ashley Casey, who has been at this police department far longer than I have. And I'll use her as an example. And Randy knows her. Um, it is my job to work myself out of a job, which may sound counterintuitive, but I want to create a police department that doesn't need me. Now, my boss, my city manager, Shawnee Yelverton, uh, would bristle at that a little bit and tell me how much the police department, in fact, does need strategic leadership. And, and I will say, I know. But what I mean is I want to develop people to the point whether if I'm here or I'm not, you don't notice a difference in the operational mm -hmm. manner in which the police department is running or is successful or not. Um, so Ashley and I have always worked together. Um, on the premise that I want her to be able to do my job. If I drop dead today, or she and I call it the bus theory. If I get run over by a bus today, I want you to seamlessly step into my job tomorrow and to know everything that I know and to be prepared to deal with everything that I deal with. So, you know, that involves talking to her about the things that are going on and, and the decisions that I'm making, um, but also the background of things, the political situations that exist in town or amongst uh, city council members or whatever the case may be um, that affect decisions and people's viewpoints on things. And, you know, the, the bridging of relationships that we have to do as police chiefs. Um, I want her to know all of those things. Um, she's also someone that I trust a great deal. So I will frequently look at her and go, hey, I think this and this and this. Am I missing something? What is it that I am not seeing? In this. I mean, there's very few decisions that I make that I haven't discussed with her because in my mind, she's like my last sort of stopgap before I do something stupid. Um, and she has she knows we've discussed this. I mean, she has the full ability to walk in here and shut the door and say, hey, this is not right. And here's why. Uh, and because I trust her, if she or anyone else that I trust in my leadership circle says that that's an emergency break, full stop. Because I trust your opinion. You're telling me something's wrong. I'm not going to blow you off. We're going to stop and discuss whatever it is. And um, maybe at the end, I disagree with them. Maybe I, at the end, it changes or mitigates what I'm doing. Or maybe it makes me just come to a complete stop because there's some factor going on that I didn't understand. But um, that's the way that I work with our command staff. And then what happens is that's the way that the command staff works with the levels below them. And it filters all the way down. Um, and I'll give you a real world example. Um, and I don't want to be cancer guy. So I'm hesitant. I'm always hesitant to talk about this, but you know, it exists and it's a thing. So um, when I got diagnosed in March of 20, um, it was stage four. Um, didn't look positive at all. Um, so I had to go through some very serious chemo. Um, two big surgeries. They had to remove my stomach and all kinds of stuff. So it's like I have a whole new plumbing system. Um, but Ashley really ran the department during all that. That's also the summer where George Floyd was killed by police officers. 
We had protests across the country. We had protests here in Southlake, huge demands on police departments from both from their communities and from people outside the community that were demanded to know what you were doing about certain things and how you were handling certain things. And she handled all of that beautifully, um, did an exceptional job. Now, she and I obviously talked a lot um, and her get it factor is so high that she she was making decisions on my behalf without me there and was also very sensitive to making me feel like I wasn't the chief anymore or wasn't you know still involved or wasn't doing my job. She navigated all that because you know I'm a person just like she is and certainly have my feelings at times. So to me, that's that's the payoff. Um, it wasn't that I wasn't here for a day or a week or I mean I, I didn't come back to work full full time like normal until October of that year. So it was really seven months in which I was in and out and uh, lots of times not doing well at all. And, and she handled the brunt of everything and did a great job. James, you have one assistant chief. Yes. Okay. And um, I, what I, what I'm hearing you say, and, and I love that you spoke to it. What do you think the value you are demonstrating uh, grace, trust, um, value by seeking those opinions. I can only imagine she feels that, I mean, you're, you're, you're giving it, but I can only imagine she feels that gratitude and trust herself that she wants to pay it forward and lend that to the same, um, down to her, her troops. And then they feel it. I think so many people miss that they miss, they feel like they have to instruct and tell for people to get it right rather than just just give it just ask the questions trust them and they give it back if you're if you're coaching in that way so i love that you provided that example especially in a policing environment which can easily become a tell mode like you said in moments but th the fact that you're not taking that approach is significant and i hope our audience hears that especially it can be done in any environment regardless yeah, I think uh, when I think about the payoff for that, there's obviously a, a big one organizationally, just in the culture and the way that things are run. Um, but Ashley can be the chief of any police department that she wants to be. And I mean that without exaggeration, yet she's still here as an assistant chief because she wants to be. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to speak for her, but obviously there's a certain level of fulfillment there that if it didn't exist, she could go be the chief wherever she likes. So. We talk um, about that culture, right? When you create a culture that people want to be there, um, that's a that's an amazing pl place to be. And what a legacy we leave that that we are instilling that and creating um, creating others to be themselves. Great, not that we made it, but that but we're we're creating an environment where they can become great um, through their own drive and desire, and through us teaching and coaching others. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And, and I think what, what sort of has permeated this conversation is uh, what you stated at the beginning, that it just all comes down to the people mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Um, it's all just the people business. I think the subject matter changes. You know, for me, it's law enforcement. Um, for somebody in the private sector, it can be whatever business they're in. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just all about the, the people. And if you make them successful, then they'll take care of your customers if you create that kind of environment for them you know, law genuine care and concern right genuine yeah. care and concern yeah and it has to be genuine um so this applies to people in general but cops specifically are very fine-tuned bs detectors um and they they can sense that from a mile away and they will react strongly to it so i don't to, to give i guess like some more tactical kind of examples i don't one of my goals is for them to never feel like that um, so there's times I go sit down with a shift or, you know, with uh, an entire work group or section and we can talk about an issue or a policy change. Or sometimes I'll just go to visit and say hi and say, hey, what questions do you have or, you know, what's going on in the hallway that you guys want to know about? Um, and my goal is to, for them to always feel like they got a very genuine answer, even to tell them that. Uh, so, for instance, there's some kind of change coming in law that state legislature enacted a few years ago. Um, and I have to tell you know, this group of supervisors that, hey, we're going to have to change how we do and we're going to have to record more information about all of our interactions and 
um, this, this sort of extra burden or extra workload goes on them and the officers. So in essence, I'm having a conversation with them where I'm telling you, you're going to make your job just a little more complicated and just a little harder than it was yesterday. And, uh, you know, you can sort of see the, the looks around the room. And, but I told them, Hey, I feel the exact same way that you do. Just so you know, I've just already made it through the four stages of grief because I've thought about this and they all kind of start laughing. And I'm like, I knew I was going to have to do this five or six days ago. So if you feel like you're you're watching me and you think, well, he accepted that really easy. I didn't accept that really easy. Um, I've just made it to the point where I'm not mentally fighting it anymore. And if you give yourself a week, you'll get there, too. And they all kind of laugh and they understand. And I want them to know that, yeah, it's as frustrating for me as it is for you. I don't like it. Um, but, you know, this is why. And when I discuss issues with them. Um, so even if we have some some sort of uh, internal discipline, some serious disciplinary matter, whenever I deal with that, I always go talk to all the officers about it. So, you know, it's an unfortunate byproduct of, of being the leader that sometimes you have to deal with things like that, whether it's letting an employee go or um, it could be many different things. I will go talk to the officers um, simply because in typical police environments, that does not happen. So what happens is, let's say you separate an officer from your police department, that officer is friends with all your existing officers. So he or she tells them their version of whatever went on, which typically does not contain maybe all of the information. Um, and that's with any ex-employee. So I go sit down with them and I go, hey, guys, here's what went on. Now, what I always think that I want to do with that, and I'll tell them my goal is not to convince you. I don't want to walk out of this room and you feel like I persuaded you to agree with me. I don't care if you agree with me. We hire you because you're intelligent adults, you're independent thinkers, you stand in the middle of crisis and you find the proper resolution. So I'm not standing here trying to sell you something, but I want to tell you how I got from point A to point B. Here's what went on. And all I ever want for that is for them to kind of follow the bouncing red ball of, of logical decisions. And universally fact, at the end of that, yeah. they will tell me, yeah, I see how you got where you're going. And, and it's always worked out really well, but that's one of those things of just being open with them and to your point, being genuine and not trying to feed them anything, just just having a conversation with, you know, no, no extraneous motives involved in it, really. There's no so, so often we find that there's people that believe the more you say something to try to convince somebody, they're going to ultimately believe it. And I always feel it's the opposite. The more you keep trying to convince them of a fact that they cannot see, the more questions are pop up of why are they going over and over and over this to us and saying it nine different ways. You know, if you just lay out, like you said, the if you follow the bouncing ball, here's how I got to the decision. Uh, it's tough. Whether the community likes it, doesn't like it, whether the police likes it or doesn't like it, you just try to tell them, here's how I got to the decision. Right. And um I hope I hope you can get there too, um, that we're on the same page and that we go forward together, you know, kind of arm in arm type of thing. It won't always be that way, but if you consistently use that method of delivery and it is genuine, 90% of your people are going to see that. Like you said, the BS meter is not going to go off. They're going to go, that's the same way he talks about everything. That's the same way he shares it. He's not trying to convince. He's not trying to lecture so that we, we believe him. You know, it's fact. He's right. giving us the facts and then we move on down the road. I think that's, a, it's very important in a, in a good analysis of how you do that. I think something that, that um, works into that aspect of just being genuine is that I work to spend time around all of our employees in which I don't need or want anything. Like just to go sit down and say hello and talk about their families or their kids or, you know, ask what's going on or talk about their goals. I'm not telling them some news. I'm not telling them about anything. I'm not asking them about a decision they made at three o'clock this morning because they pulled somebody over who knew somebody, you know, whatever those, those things that happen. It's, it's just to say hello and just be part of them. And it really serves two purposes. Number one, it fills me up because anytime that I'm just around our people is the best part of the day. It's not paperwork. It's not budget. It's not strategic plans. It's not any of the issues of the day. It's personal, right? It's just them. And my presence is not abnormal. 
them. So I can come and just sit down with them as a group and they'll speak freely and talk to me about things and ask what, what's really on their mind. Well, James, you've talked a little bit about your leadership with your team, you know, with your assistant chief and down through the troops. Tell me a little bit about how you see those working relationships. Uh, we talk about serving up, out and down. How do you how do you serve others around you, your peers, um, the other directors in the city? And, and how do you see the ability to serve up to those above you? Um, so it's interesting here in South Lake, and you may enjoy the, the same things where you're at, Lisa, um, that the police department is just one part of the city team. Now, there, there is a danger within police and fire, within first responders, and that is that we have the ability to really separate ourselves and say things like, but what we do is different than public works, and it's different than parks or community services, and it's different than planning and development. And um, while those things are true, that does not foster um, a great working environment or great relationships. So we approach thing, the police and fire department here in Southlake, approach it as though we're just members of the city team. We're just one part of it. Um, it's a fact that any police and fire department take up roughly 50% of a, the city's budget. It's that way almost everywhere. It's a very expensive endeavor. Um, but we have to be careful even in the budgetary things that we need and request um, in comparison to, you know, the city needs a new dump truck or et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we work to, to really just be part of the team uh, and me personally to support other directors and to do anything they need. If they need help with something or if there's somebody that uh, I can meet with or talk to, maybe sometimes it's somebody that they're sort of nurturing to uh, have a greater leadership capacity. Um, if there's some influence that I can, that I can have, um, then we always do that. But it works in reverse, too. I mean, we've got I've got some great partners that are other department directors that are wise and way smarter than me. Um, and I will call them and it might be our CFO and say, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this and this and this. What do you, what do you see wrong with it? And uh, she'll give me a great viewpoint and maybe even a piece of history that happened before I was here that I don't know that might come into play mm -hmm. with whatever's going on is the context always matters. So I, I, I generally interact um, with department directors and the city manager and the assistant city manager. And I leave all those conversations or those meetings um, convinced that I'm the dumbest one there. Uh, those are some super smart people that are really doing good work and I should really listen. Uh, in terms of the city manager's office, um, you know, it's one of those things where you where I see my world through my eyes and I think sometimes we make an unconscious assumption that everyone else sees the world the same way that all the other you know department directors see the world the same way and uh, maybe sometimes i don't recognize strongly enough that we're all different people and see things different ways but uh for me i see the city manager's office as as customer number one first off um, now the city manager's office is here to help me they want the police department to be successful they want me to be successful um, I trust them a great deal. Um, so they will call and say, hey, it looks like you got this or this or this going on. What can we do to help? Um, you know, I mentioned that at the time when I was out dealing with cancer and my assistant chief was running the department and dealing with uh, what we lovingly called the summer of protest. Um, and the city manager's office would step in and say, hey, what do you need? What can we do? Can we return phone calls for you? What, what is it that you need? Um, so, you know, they, the, the, the concept of serving here really goes every which direction up, out, down, sideways, diagonal. Um, it really goes everywhere. But by the same token, I have tremendous respect for their opinion. So if I'm doing something and the, the city manager, the assistant city manager said, Hey, I don't know if that's the best idea for me, that's full stop. I mean, somebody that I, regardless of their level of authority, um, somebody that I really trust just said in very nice words, but what they said was, you need to quit it until we reevaluate what's going on. They're nicely telling me to stop. Um, so I feel like I always need to hear that in those situations. And, you know, if you, if you trust them, um, put stock in what they're saying because they're there trying to help you. Every once in a while, um, the boss will say, 
hey, is there anything that you need that we're not doing for you? And I personally am always puzzled by the question because I always think, no, but if there was, I would ask you. I'm not a passenger in this. If, uh, you know, there's something that the police department needs or that I need that I'm not getting from the city manager's office, then I will ask. Um, what are they going to do? Get mad at me for asking? I mean, that's not how they operate. They're great people. They want the city to be successful um, and are often just looking for opportunities to help. Um, so in, in my world, those things don't go unspoken. There's not issues laying around that we don't look at or talk about. So if I needed something, I would simply just call and ask them. Yeah, I think that's that's amazing that, you know, what a testament to the culture that they are reaching out to you. They certainly didn't have to to say, how can we help you? Can we get somebody to help answer phones? Can we help, you know, your your short staff? Whatever the issue might be, that level of support uh, just demonstrates the value factor that's been established at South Lake. And I think that's a, a great testament to the to the culture, to not only what you've formed in your leadership and with your team, but that that speaks volumes to what they're establishing from the top down. I, I agree with you. That is the the work of the city management team, Shawna Yelverston and Allison Ortowski. And uh, I mentioned Ben Thatcher earlier, who's the city manager of Barney now. He was an assistant city manager here for quite a while. Yeah, um, we just played, recently spoke with him. Played, played an essential role in the, the formation of the culture that this entire city has. Um, I remember the day that I got hired and, and I came in as assistant chief. So, you know, I'm getting the tour of the city and town hall and it's probably, you know, it's not your average onboarding experience. Um, and about halfway through the day, I realized that like all these people are telling me how wonderful it is here and how much I'm going to enjoy it and what a wonderful place it is. And you hear that a few times and you just, you know, acknowledge it and move on. And then I heard it one too many times. And then it occurred to me, they're serious. Like that's not BS. These people actually seem to mean this. Um, and it, it felt strange at the time, um, but it's still like that. It's just, it's a really good place to be. We always talk about culture as something you you live and breathe. It's not just what you do, right? It, it's it's You can actually physically almost feel it when it exists. And you can certainly feel it when it doesn't. Yes. The impact, the impact is great on either side of that coin, um, whether it's positive or whether it's uh, not positive. Um, as you, have you found anything in this culture and what you're hi you're hiring great people, obviously, have you found anything from your perspective that works when you're hiring things that you're asking, things that you're looking for that you can share with our audience that make a great hire for your organization? Because it sounds like it's unique. You're getting great people, um, and people that, that, support that culture. So I'm curious what you're doing from a hiring standpoint to get the right people. Well, I would, so when you say that, what I think of is that uh, sort of an essential thing for any organization or any team, by the way, it's the same way for SWAT teams or even special operations units, is to have that sort of team success, you've got an onboarding plan, we'll call it a hiring process. You've got the training and the standards while they're there. And then you've got an offboarding process. Here's what happens if you're not abiding by our culture and by our rules and that you actually address that. Um, and it's the same thing. Um, I wish that I knew of a great question or something to ask at hiring. Um, but it, even for police officers to, to give those listening an example of the hiring process, and this will make sense in just a minute, but um, they, they indicate interests. They fill out a personal history statement that is every detail of their lives just about since they've been born. Um, they apply. We comb through that. They, they go and they take a physical exam. They take a written exam. They pass that. They do an oral board interview. If they pass that, they go into a full background investigation. If they pass that, then they get a conditional offer. And once they get that, they have to do their polygraph and they have to do a psychological evaluation. They have to do a drug screen. That polygraph covers everything that was in that background and in that personal history statement. So people get eliminated there, too. And after that, they have a final offer with me. And you would think if people can make it through that, then you've always hired great people. And that is not and never true. Um, we do well at it. But there's also times where we have to exercise that offboarding plan and maintain those standards while we're here. So if you're hiring 
you know, 90% of the people you hire are great people. The other 10% aren't, but you're not maintaining your standards and enforcing them, then you eventually are going to have 10% of your workforce that is just dragging down the other 90 because you've created an environment where it's okay for them to continue to exist. And I really don't mean that to be, uh, to be hard about it. It's just the, the longer that I've gone in this, the more clearly I understand it. And, and I tell our new hires, you're going to be, you're going to make two choices. You're going to be an addition to this organization, or you're going to be a subtraction to this organization. If you're an addition you're part of the family. It's fantastic. I'll do anything in the world for you. The day you become a subtraction, I will separate you from us. Just yeah. to lay it out plainly now so that everyone understands. And um, they always appreciate that. And, and that stuff's never taken as it's not some kind of draconian threat or anything like that. I just want everybody to understand that we're not an organization that's going to float people, going to float employees that are working against us or that are not furthering the mission of the police department or the city as a whole. That's awesome. I, it's it's interesting because you, it's all about even through the pro, y'all have a difficult process. How long does yours take typically from start to finish? A couple months. Um, yeah, I was going to say we've shortened it as much as we humanly can. A couple of months. One of the big variables in there is the background investigation. So, mm-hmm. hey, we've got somebody that wants to come to work with us, and you know they worked for another police department in the DFW area, and that's really the only place they've ever worked as an adult. That's a pretty simple background investigation. If they've worked four or five places and a couple of them are out of state, now I'm sending a background investigator to those states, to wherever they work, to interview people in person, and that drags it out. Um, From the moment that somebody um, fills out a form online and indicates interest to us, to our final hiring, I think we we hire about one out of 100, I would say, at that point. even when they come through the oral board interview and it looks positive, they've still got to make it through the background. And we, we eliminate about 50% of those that make it through the oral board interview in the background process. Mm. Um, process wise, like in my own head, I don't really acknowledge that that looks like a decent hire until they're through backgrounds because it doesn't matter what I think of them. You know, if we find, we uncover something they didn't want to tell us two days later, then it's all moot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've learned over the years not to invest any, thought or time until they, they make it through the background investigation. Well, thank you for sharing that. I was just curious because everybody right now is trying to find the candidates, right? Trying to find candidates to hire, trying to fill our vacancies, uh, whether it's police, fire, or general employees, it's been a difficult process in recent years post COVID. And I think everybody's facing that we've, uh, we found that. So I was just curious if you found what works uh, on your side and you have to go through similar situations, even for the civilians, not quite as extensive, but do they have to go through um, to get through the, I forgot what it's called, the CGIS or? Um, yeah, depending so. on their position, there's some some CGIS requirements. CGIS is a criminal justice information system. It's because they have access to, to confidential criminal justice information. Uh, and depending on where they're at, like our civilian record staff, they go through a full background investigation because... Now, you can think of a detective working a case that's got sensitive information in it. Well, the person that maintains that file after the detective is done with it are those civilian records personnel. So they essentially have access to all the same sensitive information that we do. So, yeah, it can be a it can be a bit of a gauntlet. But I I guess the thing I would stress, if I could, to those uh, listening is is hire for your culture, hire for the fit, hire for the person. Um, most jobs, you can teach them the technical skills. Now we're not hiring neurosurgeons here at the police department. We're hiring police officers, right? So if you're a 21 year old kid, but we think you're going to be an excellent fit for our culture, we'll hire you and we'll put you through the police academy and pay your full salary while you're going and pay for everything. And we'll teach you the intricacies and the technicalities of being a police officer. Um, but what really matters at the end of that is, is your heart in the right place? Is your mind in the right place? You know, are you traveling on the same road we are? Are you bought into what we refer to as the South Lake Way? Um, it's, it, you know, we have the opportunity to hire lateral officers. That can be a plus and a minus. Um, they can come with great experience from other places. They can also bring problems with them from other places. So that's got to be carefully evaluated. But sometimes that's attractive because they can become more effective police officers much quicker. They're already certified. They're already experienced. The training they have to go through is fairly minimal. Um, but you've got to be really careful about 
bringing them on and the effect that they have on your culture. Um, I tell our FTOs and our first line supervisors that they are the guardians of the culture that we've made here with our brand new people. That is them that sets that. It is not me. A uh, brand new police officer, they know me because they've met me at the end of the hiring process. Otherwise, I do not exist to them. Um, they, they've learned how to be a good cadet to the academy, and then they learn how to be a good recruit officer while they're in training with a field training officer. But those people are the ones that really set the standards for them. The corporals, the sergeants, and the FTOs are, are really what matter the most in that. It's not me. Truly the boots on the ground. We always hear the term. Truly Absolutely. the boots on the ground. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I, any final words that you'd like to share, words of wisdom and leadership, uh, lessons learned, anything, now's your opportunity. And then I'll turn it over to Randy for closing comments. I don't know. I wish I had some great parting comment, but I don't. <laughs> Putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Well, you shared a lot of great wisdom and we really appreciate your time with us and uh, joining with us today. Randy? Do you have a favorite quote, James? And by the way, my face broke my webcam. So if the audience is curious, <laughs> then I've, I've got a face for audio only. You got a favorite quote? I figured that was going to happen eventually. Um, man, on the spot. He's looking around really. his desk. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to think of one as soon as we, I click off with you. But no, no, no way. Anything in my head right now. Mine is everything is hard until it's everything is hard until it's easy. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's police work or leadership or anything else. Right. I mean, and yeah. so my point of that is just the, is, is just putting in the practice. So our audience is really diverse as we talked about before we hit record, uh, James. So for people that aspire to get to just the next level, you know, Lisa's made no secret that she has aspirations to, to get, to be a number two in, in a CMO, to be an assistant city manager. So to go from a director, a longtime director to that role, or to go from, you know, a, a deputy chief to be a chief, just that next level up, whatever it may be, no matter where they are in the organization, what advice would you give? Um, uh Prepare as much as you can, but understand that whatever you did won't be enough. Uh, so I, I think when I think about my promotions or my advancement, um, I always try to prepare and um, just suck as much knowledge out of other people as I could. And then the first day I walked into that position, I looked around and thought, holy crap, what have I done to myself? <laughs> um, and then eventually, the you, truth? eventually you adjust to that, that sort of, new normal and then you know you you don't feel like you're just treading water you feel like you can actually plot your course um but i think that's a normal process that, that everybody goes through no amount of preparation can can do justice for you till you're in the chair and experience it it just i was here 10 years before i got promoted to director and i still sat in that chair thinking i was prepared and did not realize the volume. I mean, I, I didn't have high ego. I knew I'd still be learning, but you right. just don't know what you don't know until you're there and it starts hitting you and you realize, okay, now I got to solve for something that's not been addressed. And you look for those, we talked about humility. We look for those around us that may have gone through it. What'd you learn? What were the pain points? What went well? And you try to say, okay, with all that knowledge, now here's what I'm going to do in this case to make it right. better. Yeah, I think when you're uh, so for me, when I was assistant chief, when I was the number two person, you know, you're making all all the operational decisions or most of them if you're working for a good boss um, and you watch your boss, the number one person, be it a chief CEO, director or whatever the, the term is for your industry. Uh, and you are thinking something like I can do that. And that may very well be true until one day you actually step into that role. And you realize that that buck stops with you, that up to that point, there was this sort of thing you didn't think about a whole lot floating in the background, which is, eh, it's ultimately not my decision. Um, but when you're that boss, it ultimately is your decision and there's nowhere else it goes. And I think that there's a mental adjustment that just comes with that. I mean, that alone, I think, can feel overwhelming at times. You know, the only other question I'd ask that has come up before, and I'm, I'm working with some HR professionals that want to go up, but they're constantly disappointed. They're always the, you know, 
always the the bridesmaid never the bride type of thing and i can't remember if it was ben or one of the others that we talked to that said the same thing which could kind of questioning questioning i'm always kind of the number two but you have to find that right fit would you have any advice for those that are going through that scenario in this competition world we're in right now of competing for jobs and well-qualified candidates um, I'll give you my personal point of view on that. So when there there have been um, things in my career that I tried to do that didn't work. Um, like I can remember being an officer. There was a vacancy for a canine officer, which I just desperately wanted to do. Um, and I applied for that and did not get it. And they gave it to a different officer who subsequently was later responsible for the death of his canine. Um, so I could think about that and think, man, I really didn't get to do what I wanted to do, but at the same time, not getting that position put me on the leadership track that I stayed on. And if I'd gotten that position, I would have been in that position as a canine officer for probably seven to nine years. Um, and my life right now would be on a vastly different track. Um, not that that wouldn't be okay. just not like it is. Um, I think that those things largely happen for reasons and we may not realize what those reasons are. But if you're the person who's wanting to advance or who's wanting that next opportunity, I think if I feel like I have to force that situation, then it's probably not right. Probably not like, to be. It's not. Um, you know, I've, I heard a story from a boss of mine who was looking at a candidate for a high level position and um, the guy said something to the effect of, well, you know, what, what can I do to make you comfortable with, with me? And I thought I would never say that because if you're not, this is bad. It may work for a year, but it's going to wind up being bad. You're going to get, there's going to be some inherent tension or conflict here and it just shouldn't happen. So, you know, to me, instead of being, you know, focused on that advancement, it's being focused on that fit. Um, and that fit will come. You've just got to be ready for it. Um, and be patient, right? Be pa And it's so hard to be patient when you desperately want something. I understand that it's, it's similar to the advice you and I probably have given our kids over time. Um, you know, as my kids got older and were dating more and more and more, um, and older and they, they kind of wanted to be married, right? They, and I kept saying, first, be patient. Secondly, it should be easy that relationship should just be easy. It should, you should get, you should not fight. You should not be arguing about everything that comes down the path. It should be kind of comfortable. And now you'll have moments, but man, it should just be easy. And as they found their partner, right. They were like, mom, we get it. We, we get it. This is easy. I mean, they have moments of conflict. We all do. It's life. And we call it life. But the rest of it should be easy. You should be uh, supportive of one another. You should be on the same page. And then those moments of conflict are much easier to get through because you're passionate about one another and and uh, you want that moving forward. Usually what happens in our moments of conflict is my wife realizes she's wrong and then, you know, we can move on. That's how it goes, huh? Huh. That's interesting. <laughs> Fat chance. We're supposed to be we're supposed to be truthful here, Mr. James Brandon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is not Brandy, how Brandy, you have our number? <laughs> yeah. No. Wiser than I am. <laughs> he is Chief Brandon. Um Chief James Brandon, City of South Lake. Man, James, we appreciate your time. You've been super That's generous right. with us and we've we've gone longer than we needed to because I did have a power glitch, which blew my camera up and caused us to be delayed. But thanks, man, so much for the time. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for watching and listening to Grow Great, a city government leadership podcast. For Lisa Norris, I'm Randy Cantrell. Be well, do good, grow great. The website is growgreat.com.